Welcome back to the Mom Mentality Show. My name is Austin Chadwick and Chris Lucian as co-host. And today we're very excited to be talking to Gabriel Horbana and Kieran Murphy on the exciting topic of pair programming and frequent pair rotation. Um, so lots of exciting things there. Um, but before we jump into that topic, uh, uh, we'll have both of you introduce yourself. So starting with you, Gabriel. Okay. Uh, it's nice to be here. I'm Gabriel Hobaina. Pronouns are he and him. I'm from Brazil. So I was born in Rio, but I live in Santa Catarina State. Um, I actually have been programming as a hobby since I was 14. I used to do lots of mods for computer games. I started with GTA, which is a fun, fun one. Uh, as of other hobbies, I'm also a singer, or I like to think that I am one. Uh, my girlfriend says that I am, so I trust her. <laughs> I have been doing mob programming since I joined ThoughtWorks in 2022, which makes me a beginner in the topic, but very excited to learn about it, to share this knowledge with others uh, and trying to get as much experience as I can with it. I have been doing it a lot since I joined ThoughtWorks, so it's a fun topic to me. Uh, I am also pursuing a master's degree in applied computing right now, so it's like a, I work during the day, I work during the night as well uh, kind of thing. Go ahead, Kieran. All right. And uh, my name's Kieran Murphy. My pronouns are he, him. I live in Chicago, Illinois, in the U.S. I've been a consultant with ThoughtWorks now for about seven years, and, but I've been, uh, I consider myself a longtime XP practitioner. So I feel pretty lucky that I got exposed to things like pairing and TDD really early in my career. And it's stuck with me and I've been able to find places to practice and continue learning that throughout. I would say I've been working in software since about 2005. I've been a developer, a tech lead. Similar to Gabriel, I started out coding as a, as a youngster. For me, it was a little different. TRS-80 computers, learning basic, uh, more programming than, than software. Professionally, I've followed the path more of an application developer, solution architect. But now in recent years, I've found my career has shifted more into coaching and enablement and learning. So I find myself now uh, have really been lucky to work on quite a number of product projects now with clients of doing like boot camp training, uh, just basically helping teams learn and develop what they're doing. I'm also, for the last two years, I've also been teaching undergraduate computer science at Loyola University, Chicago which has brought me a lot of joy. And when I'm not working or teaching, I'd like to learn different things. So lately I've been on kind of a kick about learning about video games and game design. So that's about Fantastic. me. Fantastic. Well, great intro. Thank you both. Uh, we're excited to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, this would be really fun to dive into uh, your all's pair programming topic and uh uh, yeah, we mob uh, pretty much full time. And uh, but what often happens happens with mobbing is uh, someone goes on vacation or goes joins helps out another team. And hey, we're pairing. And so pairing is something that we do quite a bit as well. And uh, it sounds like you all have a story to share on uh, some sort of uh, pairing and experimentation. Rand, uh, do you want to jump into that? I'm excited sure. to hear. Sure. Uh, you know, pairing is something that we believe in. It's one of our thought works sensible default practices. So it's something that our teams start out with and do. Uh, about a year ago, a ThoughtWorks leader came to us with some concerns about a couple of teams. And these teams were 
doing our practices, they were pairing, but they were just not really as predictable as maybe we would like folks to be. And it seemed like there was also some tension and stress on these teams. Getting to know the folks, we found there are a number of folks here who were new to pairing. So everyone believed in it, but it was kind of a new practice and they didn't really have a lot of just team expertise in pairing and how to do it, how to make it effective. So we started looking into this and, you know, some of the symptoms that we saw in these groups, pairing for long periods of time, you know, like a pair that pairs up and then they're pairing for a week or two weeks or sometimes even a bit longer. Um, some of the things that we've seen even in teams that are not pairing, like knowledge silos, uh, low participation in planning sessions, you know, things that indicate people don't have a lot of context on everything that's going on in the system. So they kind of participate where they can and keep quiet otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and, and daily stand up and retro, not so great. Go ahead, Gabriel. Yeah, we started to realize that some of these symptoms that we saw in teams that practice pairing were common to teams that didn't do pairing at all. So teams that do solo coding as the main practice. So um, not having enough knowledge of the entire system, low participation in, in stand-up refinements, et cetera, knowledge silos being created instead, uh, instead of it being assigned to a specific person, the knowledge silo was a pair because of not enough switching of pairs um, with not enough frequency. So based on this uh, learning and seeing teams doing rotations once every week, two weeks, or even a month, we saw a situation of that. Uh, that's that's the, the point we decided to propose something different. Let's try to change this process in order for us to make pairing better. Let's do it more effectively. And let's actu actually reap the benefits of having pairing as a practice. That's what we believe in. Nice, nice. Okay, great. And how many teams was this? Was this like observed, you know, by a coach for a couple teams, or was this bigger? Was it, you know, you 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 rattled off um some great observations there, but I'm I'm a little curious how how it was noticed. Yeah, <laughs> we worked with three different teams. Okay, over the course of several months, and Gabriel was actually on one of these teams when we first started. Yeah. Um. What was noticed was, like I said, you know, just uh, leadership feeling like there were there were other problems, you know, some something that we didn't mention that was also a symptom there was team members not really bonding with each other. And that seemed to be causing some anxiety as well. You know, it's hard to pair with people who you don't know very well or who might have different working styles. And how do you how do you get over that? How do you get to a place where you can pair? And uh, a team is more than one pair or is a team a pair or how, how do you define, how do you break that These up? These teams were yeah, three, eight, three pairs on average, yeah. six people, three pairs on three average. Pairs yeah. Okay. So yeah. So, so three pairs each, three different teams. Mm -hmm. And then a few of the pairs just seemed uh, to, to, to be a little less predictable. Um, and uh and of that, um, was there any other uh, indication about like how work was pulled in or anything along those lines? Or was it just specifically these combinations of people? And then what, I guess what was your finding afterwards? 
Yeah, let, let me give you a specific example of that. Um, this team initially used to do uh, estimation based on whether a card, a story card, would fit into five days of development or not. So because people didn't have enough context of the entire system, the team would go into a meeting and and like the leadership would ask, hey, does this fit in five days of development? And team would go like, I think so, yeah. I'm not really sure because I don't have much experience on that region of code, but I would say, yeah. So this, this was one of the reasons that made the team unpredictable because we were unsure if the predictions were wrong, the estimations were wrong, maybe the productivity was, was low. So we decided to tackle this problem from a knowledge sharing standpoint, making everyone be able to opinionate and do estimations on everything. And we can like, at the end of the talk, go back to this specific situation and see how it, it changed after we address the parotation frequency thing. Okay. And and so uh, so I assume that so was it like a, a forced rotation? Was it like how did how did the team start rotating? What was the what was the story there? Um, I'll take that one. We proposed an experiment yeah. with these groups, and you know you can't really do anything like this without buy-in from everyone involved. So. What we proposed was let's fix the time box of a week or two and let's go the completely the opposite direction. Let's pair swap every single day. So every day we're going to pair swap. And to support us in that, we're going to have a little session every morning. We called it a retrospective, but it was just a, you know, 20 minutes at most 30 minute session of just these three questions. What's making pairing hard? What's making pairing easy? What are some things that we can try today to try to make it easier than it was yesterday? So that was really the, the routine that we proposed. With each of these teams, we kicked this off with one session where we, we started off with one first question, asking the groups just to brainstorm on a mural. First question, what makes pairing valuable? And I thought that was really important to start with because, you know, we believe in these things. And, and I think I've seen in my career where pairing has gone from being less controversial to more mainstream, even if folks don't actually practice it as much as I would like them to. At least I don't feel like an outsider talking about it anymore like I used to. <laughs> yeah. But it was good to get people to just put on paper or in mural, you know, what is it? What's the value proposition here? And in that, we got a lot of the things that we'd expect, knowledge sharing, uh, learning different parts of the code base, learning different parts of the tech stack, my own personal learning about different things so I don't get siloed into things. And then in that opening session, we'd ask the other questions too. Okay, well, now that we talked about what makes it valuable, what makes it hard? And there, I think, again, we heard a lot of the things that we would probably all anticipate. Um, we can expand on those. Why don't, you, why don't you share on that a little bit, Gabriel? Yeah, sure. So uh, what makes pairing hard? So like, not having enough time to pairing, um, too many meetings throughout the day, uh, context switching is too, like, it's too expensive. We don't like switching pairs. Uh, so we started hearing from, from the teams all the, the fears that they had regarding uh, pairing. And one of our goals throughout this experiment was getting each of these problems 
in trying to give some ideas or try to like build some ideas with the teams on how could we make it better so that those difficulties are not difficulties anymore. So uh, we propose the Pomodoro method as a way to like to improve time management, uh, having pauses throughout the day. That's one of the things. Uh, one of one important aspect of this is that these teams are all remote, uh, working from home. So we also suggested to the teams like from start, hey, let's maybe we can make pairing better if we use a collaboration tool like a code with me from IntelliJ. That's what the teams used at the time. So uh, based on this, we we started off um, like trying to actually uh, change pairs every day, which is the extreme opposite of what they did before. Mm -hmm. Nice, yeah. I think at least in I, I can't speak universally for all people pairing and mobbing, but uh, some sort of Pomodoro or break thing has worked wonders as far <laughs> as helping the the. Uh, engagement uh and enjoyment and effectiveness of it uh so i definitely second that one um so i suspect it you know it almost felt like to me uh you didn't say it but it almost i, I wonder what was the thinking behind hey maybe we're not switching enough let's switch every day um is it kind of more like it hurts so let's do it more kind of thing or uh, what, what was kind of the thinking there <laughs> I, I would say yeah that was <laughs> um because i you know that I've been a long time believer in that, like we used to say, if something's hard to do, do it more often until it becomes easy. But I also, something else in my background that informed this was I was on a team some years before I worked at ThoughtWorks where we, it was an interesting company. We had to do pairing all the time. We had to do pairing and test-driven development all the time. And in that team, I really got to a point where I realized that pair swapping more often is more valuable, you know? And in that group that I just mentioned, we even set out at some point to try to pair swap twice a day. So pair, pair in the morning, pair again after lunch. The thing that made it break down was that everybody would have to be on exactly the same schedule. Yeah. Now, we were all in the same office at that time. So we might've been able to make that work, but we just, nobody really wanted to commit to that level of lockstep coordination. <laughs> Yeah, and it also like we also had the hypothesis or the the belief that uh, even though it might seem costly at first to switch pairs every day, and it's painful to switch pairs every day, it gets much better over time. Mm -hmm. So that that's something else that we told uh, the teams like, hey, at first it will be bad, but at the end, let's talk about it again and see how painful it really is. And at the end of the experiment, uh, like as to close the experiment there's this final question. Like, what is the pair rotation frequency that you as a team want to maintain going forward outside of the experiment? So we propose the frequency and then we we see like the result. Does it, do the team realize that it was beneficial to the team? So more, more at the end about that. <laughs> go ahead, Chris, if you got something. I, I had a follow-up question. No, go no, go ahead. I, I saw that you looked like you wanted to say something. So, so <laughs> go for it. There, there's been um, many examples and case stories I've heard of kind of the uh, lots of switching thing. And so in this example, were people switching pairs within the same team? Because I think you mentioned before it was three pairs to a yeah. team. Because um, I've also heard of other examples where it's like... Uh, 
you know, you go from working from team A of, let's say, six people to team B, another set of six people to team C, you know, all within a couple of weeks. And they're all completely different code bases and domains and that kind of thing. So it by your nodding, it seemed like the the layout was within one team, one code base yeah. kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Yeah. That, that clarifies a lot. Yeah. Separate projects. Okay. Understood. Understood. Um, cool. Coming back to the what makes pairing hard uh, aspect a little bit. One of the biggest ones that we got was the, uh, hey, pair switching makes us slower. Like switching pairs makes us slower. And then th this was a big one because um, it may seem like that, like at first. And like being slow is not a thing that the team wants. So getting the buy-in on the experiment while having the team think that it's making them slower was a hard one. So there was some like a teaching or coaching aspect of it and saying, hey, we believe in pairing. And pairing is all about long-term like benefits of doing that. And it, it gets better over time and you get faster and it's better than doing solo coding because of the knowledge sharing and everything. So uh, at the end, we could like, figure out that and make the teams also see that it didn't didn't make them slower at all. It's not it's not a real thing. I think yeah. that was some of the value from the frequent swapping. And uh, you know, another another challenge that was raised was, you know, not knowing each other very well. So especially in this world where we're all distributed, teams don't have any just coffee time or passing in the office anymore. When you pair, if you only pair swap every few weeks, it's going to take you six months before you've paired with everybody on the team. With these groups, we found even, you know, when we'll get later to where they wound up on what cadence they wound up with, even though they didn't stick with daily pairing going on into the future, in that week or two, everybody got to pair with everybody. So a lot of progress was made on just getting to know each other. And with getting to know each other is also figuring out other people's work styles and work patterns and routines and how you can all work together happily. So as far as the uh, knowledge sharing and siloing goes, were, were there any were there any like big aha moments that the team had because they started swapping and seeing stuff or was it did it take a while for it to come through that, that sort of thing i would share one that to me was a was very significant the second team that we worked with prior to this experiment their their pairing they were trying to maintain a lot of different different constraints you know, are trying to pair within constraints that they felt they needed to maintain. So some people are front-end developers, some people are back-end developers, some people are more senior, some people are earlier in their journey. So, you know, trying to never pair two junior people or only put the back-end people on the back-end work. So these kind of things that were making it harder to pair swap or putting, you know, making it harder for everyone to swap with everybody. After doing a week of this swapping every day, you know, you can't maintain all those constraints. So there will be a day where two junior people are paired to, with each other. And the groups figured out, well, actually, that was a great learning opportunity that no one had realized before. And the thing that was really significant to me was hearing on that team, someone who had come in and said, 
I have always been a front end developer. And now after just a few days of this, I feel confident anchoring a back end card. So people were learning, you know, the, the yeah. things that seemed like a constraint that you would want to maintain out of sense of safety or because you think, you know, for all the right reasons, I felt after this experiment, I felt convinced that actually just breaking it down and getting everybody into everything was probably a, a better way to go. Yeah, and, and there might be a situation in which two juniors pairing say, hey, we're not making much progress. This is frustrating. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it doesn't matter because tomorrow it's a different pair. Right. So you take the learning opportunity, you do the best that you can, and tomorrow it's another different scenario. You don't like it's not really painful if it's only for one day. Yeah. And those junior level developers get a realistic understanding of the things that they don't know, uh, you know, rather than having somebody they can always just go to all the time. So right. yeah, the benefit to That's that. True. Uh, yeah. The one the one aha moment that I can bring. Um we had a production issue a bad one and we had to do a hot fix and then leadership on the team started to think like who should we assign this to like what is the developer the more appropriate one to investigate and leadership realized anyone like doesn't matter who we assign it to <laughs> we're taking the like the card with the last priority and can stop it to to tackle the, the production bug and then they did it and it worked well like it was successful. It shows how knowledge can knowledge flows through the team equally over time, uh, which is a really good benefit of pairing. And from that, we got a very powerful quote that me and Kieran we like it very much, and we memorized it, which is like quote unquote, knowledge silos are impossible to maintain, which is a strong one. And we heard it from one of the team members that we did the experiment with. Um, so that that's the the aha moment there. Yeah. So you could you couldn't make one if you tried to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> someone, yeah. Yeah. Someone yeah. got uh, grew horns and wanted to try to make one. Yeah. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. impossible. <laughs> nice. Um, in the logistics of the rotation, uh, was it was a card completed before people rotated or was a card active and one person rotated off? Like, was there any sort of like context maintenance or was it just both people were new each day on the same card? Yeah, we, our plan and what we strove for in each case was to have someone be an anchor on a card for only one extra day. Okay. So to your first question, yes, the cards did go on more than a day or two. But in our pair swapping every morning, we would organize. So, you know, if you were the anchor on the card today, you would rotate off of it the next day. I think most cards would be wrapped up before you would have to come back around and be on it again. But some cards did go a bit longer. <laughs> One thing that I, I've uh, so, so you know, I, I've seen experiments like this run in many different contexts. Um, you know, we, we had five people that were doing a three-person mob in a pair and rotating back through each one um, and, and others. And uh, and so often context comes up as um, a struggle point. And so, uh, uh, but, but what I see a lot too, a big complaint is like, oh, I started something, but I never got to finish it. 
um, or I finished something, but I, you know, I don't know anything about what we started with it. Did you, did you have any yeah. of that? Was there any conversation about that? Uh, like one of the, the retros we did, there was a, like what makes pairing hard card that mentioned context, like context maintenance, like you like you said. One of the solutions that the team suggested and it worked really well is what we called at the time the implementation plan, which is actually uh, like a task list for, for the card being played. Mm -hmm. So when teams maintained that, we made sure that we had visibility on the steps needed to finish. And of every open item that teams discovered, open questions, refactoring opportunities, it was all there to support the rotations. Another solution that the teams found was uh, at the end of the day, write a brief, a brief paragraph on the card what, with what was done, like any mm -hmm. information that they found useful to share. So those two tools in conjunction uh, made it work. So we never heard about struggles with context maintenance after we, we did the solutions. Yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, and I guess um, did you guys experiment into like how did you discover the kind of anchor role and anchor card? And to set the stage a little bit, I think I've seen it happen before where there isn't something like that, and people feel really lost, right? Like uh, there isn't someone to someone or something to anchor them, and so they the pair mob will flail, <laughs> right? So how did you land with kind of this anchor role and anchor card pattern? Like what, what got you there? <laughs> yeah, in these teams, the anchor role already existed when we joined. So okay. even infrequent pair rotations, uh, the anchor it was still a thing. There was an anchor that stayed for two weeks and the other one would rotate every week. Uh, but yeah, other than that, Kieran, do you have more like broader context than that on, on the anchor? No, I think it is just as you said. Uh, and I think something that the teams had seen before doing this was that that anchor role kind of reinforced the knowledge silos too. So often that person who owns all of the cards in this part of the code base would tend to be the anchor on all the cards on that part of the code base too. Yeah, the team that, that I'm in right now, we used to do something called the feature champion which is like the, the go-to person for a specific feature. Yeah. Um, it worked for us for, for a little while, but in turn, uh, it sounds like a knowledge silo, like Kieran said. So it's a feature knowledge silo to this champion figure. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that's the difference, right? Because you need, I feel like from what I've experienced and seen, you need just, it's like minimum viable anchor, right? <laughs> you don't want knowledge silo, right? But you need something. You need like you need that's kind of part of the benefit of pairing and mobbing, right? Is if there is no anchor, you're kind of losing part of the benefit of someone having the context there. So it doesn't have to be in a hundred page document or it doesn't have to be, you know what I mean? There's that that the, the stuff flying around in the conversation, right? That we love in agile. But if there's no anchor for that, for it to transition enough to get to the next pair mob, you kind of lose it, right? But you don't want that to be a long-term role, <laughs> right? Because then you, then you don't get the goal you got earlier where you're saying, who can fix this? Anyone can fix this, right? You know, so, because if you had a champion in the 
other end of the spectrum, the the answer would always be the champion will fix this, right? You know, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that minimal viable anchor. Uh, yeah. Sorry. It works. <laughs> I thought that uh, the way the way we saw folks explore and discover ways to manage this challenge because context sharing i think that was one of the one of the bigger fears that was that we heard when we first kicked this off what you know one of the bigger perceived barriers to frequently pair switching was oh we're going to spend all of our time just context switching and it'll take me forever to bring someone up to speed on this what i enjoyed seeing was how the teams just figured out other ways in their work to manage it so like the stuff that gabriel mentioned in some ways, the the card, wherever you Jira or Trello, wherever you represent it, that can carry a lot of context. I agree with you, Austin, the 100-page document, that was the thing that nobody ever reads. But the practice of just, you know, how about at the end of the day, we just write a little comment on the card that says, Kieran and Gabriel paired on this. This is what we did. These are the questions we had. This is where we ended. This is what we think we're going to do next. That's something that I've found teams hit on when we're distributed. You know, when the end of my day is the beginning of my teammates' days, we'll learn to put a note in the chat to pass context that way. And here we found teams where they were even within one time zone of each other, but they found the same practice helpful just for conveying something to the next person, to the next pair that picked it up. Yes. Cool, cool, cool. Um, one other uh, logistical note, I heard Chris mention logistics. So was the swapping kind of open-ended or self-organized or was there like a, a chart on the wall or a virtual wall somewhere? Was it like scheduled out? Like how, how does that, how do, how do I know where I'm going each day <laughs> if I'm swapping? It was facilitated, but not prescribed. So we would meet with the teams every morning for at most about 30 minutes. And that would be the short retro that I described of, you know, what was hard yesterday, what was easy yesterday, what should we do? And then we would pair swap and we would just use a typical pairing matrix and just setting a goal to try to get everybody to pair with everybody else within the time that we had. But this is where it, it always breaks down a bit because you only have so many people and you have so much work in progress. And sometimes the the other constraint of wanting an anchor to swap off every day, things like that. You know, we did the best we could within those constraints. But to your question, no, I don't think people ever came in knowing who they were going to pair with okay. that day or next week or anything like that. They just knew it was going to be somebody different. Yeah. yeah. I worked in... Oh, go ahead, Gabriel. You first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the third team, I was the tech lead for that team and I, and I brought the experiment and we took the knowledge sharing or like switching to, to an, another uh, level so the pair swapping ceremony and also the retrospective would be facilitated by a different person every day so that there was this other like this is something that worked really well not even the the ceremonies of the experiment would be stuck to a single person but instead everyone would be doing it uh in a self-organized manner as well so there was not really like no one telling people to do anything. They were figuring it out. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, right now I'm kind of more on a mob uh, that doesn't have a rotation schedule, but ad hoc, we're bringing people in and out of the mob all the time, depending on what we're working on. 
But a couple years ago, I was on a team that was six people and it was two mobs or it could turn into three pairs or whatever, but generally it landed in two mobs. But at the beginning of the week, we would roll dice or we called it like the the wheel of doom. I don't know why we called it doom just to make it sound <laughs> dramatic, but <laughs> it would randomize the teams. But then there was always, it reminded me of what you said, like facilitated, not prescripted kind of thing where if if the team landed in a way where everyone was like, ooh, that that means there's no anchor for that work or, you know, we didn't use the word anchor, but we basically said context or something like that. There'd be some twiddling with the the fate of the dice um, before we started the week. Um, and so it, it kind of sounds similar where there's some structure to it, but not too much structure, but just enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> some choice in there. Yeah. 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 Cool. Cool. Um, so, uh, did, did this have any effect on the, uh, the size of the cards? Like, so, so was there any like story decomposition and was it, was it affected by this practice or, or not, or. Yeah. So for sure it was like going back to the previous example about the five day cards, uh, after the experiment ended, uh, and the team started learning more about the whole system or the whole domain. Uh, they started to change how estimation was done. Uh, so instead of trying to fit a card to five days, they started doing actually like planning poker, uh, trying to write a card with a specific business goal as a like a proper user story and trying to figure out an estimation for that. And that in turn changed how the, the entire team and also product and management uh, saw the how we build cards, how we think about the cards, how we make sure they they achieve a goal and have enough information inside refinements got better. So I would say that's the the most immediate impact of doing that. Very cool. I reviewed some of the mural boards from these before we came in here. And there was one, we used color-coded stickies for each day so we could see Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, what people were calling out. One of these groups, there was one day where there were three cards that related to not enough information written in the card, in, incomplete information in the story card when we get it. And I remember people in that group complaining that they paired up and they spent the whole day basically doing refinement on a card rather than actually implementing <laughs> anything. Interesting. But I thought that was significant because it did, you know, it, it, to me, it was another example where I think folks were starting to feel some benefit from working this way. And rather than saying, oh, we can't work this way because the cards don't support it, they started looking upstream and saying, well, what can we change about the cards so that they will support this way of working that we're finding value in? Mm. I see. Yeah, maybe uh, if you don't mind me drilling a little more, can you tell me more about that mural board? Um, something I've seen before, we've had, uh, it was two different mobs working on the same uh code base or at least same product and there's different repos and parts of the architecture so to speak but we had a giant uh draw.io diagram of kind of like the system and like where each mob was and kind of a high level what tasks were going on in that part of the system um that was pretty beneficial uh for not only us but also it, it turned out to be beneficial too for stakeholders because kind of like here's like the you know the disneyland map of what's going on right now with uh, this team and this product um uh, yeah, and I'm wondering if if there's any similarities or differences with this mural board you mentioned. Uh, do you mind sharing more about that? 
I think the the mural that I'm mentioning is strictly for the morning retros that I mentioned. Okay. So not cool. keeping track of what people are working on, mm -hmm. but just those really just those three columns. What's making it easy? What's making it hard? What should we try today? Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and we would see also that like each column of the of the mural board is a is an answer to the question. Like cards, there are answers. And we would see that over time, the column of what makes pairing hard had like plenty of cards inside. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the experiment, it would like go down, 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 down. Uh -huh. And the idea is also, like, you know, like this, this pattern of things yeah. getting easier and easier, what makes it easier, increasing number of cards. So it was very, very nice to see like uh, not only getting to know about how it worked by perception, talking to people, but also very objectively drawn on the board, like how it was getting easier over time. Um, you mentioned earlier in the beginning that uh, a little bit of this was that you didn't really have the uh, the water cooler conversations happening and there was like interpersonal stuff. So like what happened there? Uh, was there any like review of you know, just people getting to know each other through this process or anything along those lines? Was there any result from that? I think that's a good question. I think if I did more of this, I'd probably be more intentional on just that point of yeah. getting to know each other a bit. Something that I, I do remember came out in one of these teams, there, there had been a lot of anxiety raised about folks not, you know, having a hard time working with somebody that they don't know very well. One of the things to try that that team hit on was let's have some team building things you know in the years since the pandemic started we've we've found ways that we can get together and play a game online you know we can do things besides get together and work and that can help folks get to know each other um i also found um teams just by by pairing more often it was you know within the week or so by pair swapping more often within the week or so, like I said earlier, people had some exposure pairing with each other. So they got to know, oh, this person has these routines in the morning that take some of their time. So we're not going to pair then, or this person has something else in the afternoon that takes their time. Yeah. Something else that happened, and this was suggested by, by us in the experiment was, let's try um, a round of feedback by the end of the day yeah. between the pair. So uh, what worked in, in the day, in the pairing that we just did, what didn't work? Like, let's, let's talk about this experience together. And in turn, it also helped with feedback culture in the team because we don't, we don't get as many opportunities to practice, like giving and receiving feedback. So we also use this pair switching experiment as an opportunity to exercise feedback and team members, yeah. Nice. One uh, one remote team building that we did was we shipped uh, scented markers to everyone, and then we all smelled the same thing at the same time, because you don't smell the same smells. Like you don't you don't smell the person cooking the fish remote, right? Or you don't yeah. smell the popcorn, and everybody's like groaning because they want popcorn too, and yeah. you know. So so uh, I, I really enjoyed sniffing markers together. That was pretty good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Chris is probably going to have to close down uh, pretty soon, but I want to uh, ask, uh, uh, switch pretty quick uh, to a different topic, just because I'm really curious to at least hear a soundbite on it. Um, 
It sounds like at least one of you had a situation where you did mob programming in a computer science classroom setting. So if you can give a little like a 60 second uh, teaser on that, that'd be, that'd be super cool to hear before sure. Chris sure. has to that's start closing me. this down. <laughs> that's me. That's in, that's uh, I mentioned that I've been teaching computer science classes. So I teach a 100 level and 200 level computer science class. And these are, it's a school of continuing and professional studies at Loyola University of Chicago. So in each session, I'll have about 15 students. There'll be a few traditional undergrads, but mostly it's beginning graduate students or what I call career changers, folks who finished something and now they're coming back and learning computer science. And being the mob programming aficionado that I am, when I first started this, I, I knew there needed to be coding. So I would do some coding in class. And I remembered a professor I had who would do live coding and that was really impactful for me. But after a couple of sessions, I realized that the students weren't getting anything out of watching me code. And I wasn't getting anything out of performing code for them. So I thought, I'm gonna turn this around and have them code. And what I found was, it, it's really been a lot of fun and really fascinating for me. And I get a lot of good feedback from the students on it because for those few hours of the week, they get put into this environment where everybody has to code all the things that we love about mob programming. You know, it moves quickly. You, if you don't know something, it's okay because you're only going to be on it for five minutes or, or, or so you're not under all that pressure. And for me as the instructor, it let me actually step back and all I really have to do is officiate this mob, ask some questions, call out points that are that are valuable. But I, I feel like it's been a really impactful application of mob programming. Nice. Well, uh, with that, I think uh, it might be a good time to uh, close it out. So, um, you know, uh, for each of you, is there anything that you'd like to plug or share before we close out the episode? Uh, I think I can start. So we actually wrote an article about this whole experience with frequent pair rotations. It's on LinkedIn. Uh, I hope I can like, give you the, the link yeah, and you put can put it in the show notes. Yep. Yeah. So uh, please reach out if you have any questions. Uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about this topic to anyone interested in knowing more. And thanks for the opportunity of, of being here talking about this. All right. I'll just say plus one to Gabriel. All right. Great. Well, uh, to our listeners, um, if uh, if you know someone uh, that maybe is struggling with, with uh, silo pairs or um, maybe uh, needs a new way to approach um, how they're organizing their pairs and, and could use an experiment, share this episode with them. And, uh, uh, you know, please be, be sure to like and subscribe and ring the notification bell and all of those things. And, uh, and uh, to our guests, thank you for joining us. And uh, to our audience, we will see you all next time. Have a good one. Thank you. <laughs>